Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, June 22nd, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And before we dive into this week's episode, I want to thank those of you who continue to support the show. Um, one of the best ways you can show your support is by visiting Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Talk Nerdy. You can learn more there. Or you can visit um, the Talk Nerdy store at TalkNerdyMerch.com. And of course, if you're not in a financial position to support, which many of us aren't right now, um, you can just rate and review on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, or you can just share on social media. Tell your friends. Uh, that really does help. You wouldn't believe it, but it does help. All right. This week, I want to thank the top Patreon, uh, Patreon subscribers, patrons, as I call you, uh, Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Christopher Pitts, June Sapara, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Brian Holden, Daniel Lang, and David J. E. Smith. Thank you all so, so, so very much. All right. What are we talking about today? Ooh, it's a good one. It's a really good one. Okay. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Valerie Truay. Um, she is a dendroclimatologist. That means that she studies the rings in trees to understand the climate of the past and also how it influences um, you know, ecosystems and human history. She is an associate professor in the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona. And her recent book is called Tree Story, The History of the World Written in Rings. Oh my gosh, so fascinating. All right. So without any further ado, here she is, Dr. Valerie Truay. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Kara. It's an honor. So I'm really excited to talk about a topic that we've really, in the six years that I've been doing this show, never gotten into. Now, we've talked about trees. We've talked about trees a lot on the show, but mostly from a purely ecological perspective and almost like a a nature kind of enjoyment perspective. What can we learn from trees in the wild? What can we learn from deforestation, from habitat loss? But I've never, ever sat down and talked about sort of the inner workings of a tree and what we can learn from the cross-section of a tree. And you, of course, are an expert in tree rings. I am, yeah. I'm a professor in uh, my department is actually called the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research. Uh, the University of Arizona. So we have a whole department with about 12 faculty who all use tree rings uh, to study how the world operates and has operated in the past. That's amazing. And a blurb in your book, or at least the summary in the front jacket, refers to it as dendrochronology. Is that the proper name for what you study? Or is that only like a, a portion of what you study? That's um, that is a proper name. So dendrochronology comes from dendros, uh, Greek for tree, and chronos, Greek for time. So it's the uh, proper name. Dendrochronology is another word for tree ring research for this uh, use of those of us who use tree rings to study. Um, time basically mm -hmm. um and then my personally i am uh there's there's subdivision so i am a dendroclimatologist i use the rings in trees to study the climate of the past 
but there are also dendroarchaeologists who use tree rings to study archaeology or, or art history. And then dendroecologists who primarily use tree rings to look at the history of forests. Um, dendropyrologists, uh, pyrologists who use tree rings to study the fires, wildfires of the past, and so forth. So there's oh, a wow. lot of so there's- fields. Yeah. So, I mean, and all of that is really kind of contained within the rings of these trees. I mean, I guess I always knew that there was some correlation between counting rings and knowing the age of a tree. But I I figured that the science was a little more complicated than just one, two, three, and that equates the years. How does it actually work? How do you count rings to know how old a tree is? Yeah, so that's that's what you're describing is really the, one of the main reasons why I wanted to write this book because m- many people as kids learned that by counting the rings in a tree you could estimate its you can estimate its age because mm-hmm. um, every ring represents one year. And so the more rings you have, the older the tree. But there's not as many people who know that there's a whole field of science based on that concept and all of the scientific discoveries we've been able to make based on that concept. And so the counting of rings really is the basis of it, but um, not all rings are equally wide. Uh, That's, I guess, where we extract our information from. So um, in a good year, when the tree is happy, it will grow a lot and it'll it'll grow a wide ring. In a year when it's not so happy, it will not grow a lot and it will form a narrow ring. Mm. And so the you know, if you have a five hundred year old tree, it'll and you take a sample from it, you'll see five hundred rings in it, but they won't all be equally wide. So you'll get an idea over the past five hundred years which ones were the years that she was happy and which ones um, it was not so happy. And whether a tree is happy or unhappy to a large extent depends on the climate under which it grows. Um, So for instance, in Arizona where I live, trees like it when it's wet and they don't like it when it's dry. So they will grow wide rings in wet years and narrow rings in dry years. And so in that same 500-year-old tree, if you see uh, wide rings, you know those were the wet years. If you see narrow rings, you know those were the dry years. And so all of a sudden, you have a record of 500 years of climate uh, of the past, not just 500 tree rings. Wow. And I assume that that is contextual, like it's relative to the tree itself. Different species have obviously different widths and different looks to their tree rings. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. Um, this, is, this is a simplified version that I was, uh, uh, of how I explain things here. Um, to be clear, we never base our analysis just on one tree. Um, you, mm-hmm. you combine a lot of trees um, and the you know, let's say 20 trees that all grow in Tucson, Arizona, because they're all growing under the same climate, they will all be happy when it's wet and all be um, unhappy when it's dry. So they're, they're, the patterns in their tree rings 
uh, will be similar. They'll grow wide rings in the same years and narrow rings in the same years. And so you can actually start putting those sequences of tree rings from different trees together and get uh, better results that way. Um, it's not the, not, you know, species, tree species is important, um, mm. but it's not the, the main uh, contributing factor. Um, but you're right that the way the wood looks, the anatomy of the wood is quite different um, between species. And for instance, um, if you look at the tree ring sequences, and we call them chronologies that have been developed across the world, and we have maybe about 4,000 of them now that are um, publicly available, the vast majority of those are from needle leaf trees, from conifers, because they have much, generally speaking, have much clearer rings. They have a um, Oh. Simpler wood structure and so much clearer rings, easier to read rings than uh, broadleaf trees. Interesting. That's That was kind of going to be my next question, which was, you know, do all trees follow this basic um, pattern? Can you count age from the rings of every species of tree out there? Or are there some that just don't really grow that way or their rings just aren't very visible? Yeah, so both of those are true. So one, there's species that really don't have that grow a ring every year, but they're just not very visible uh, because the differences be, um, between spring wood and the, and the wood that's formed in the fall is not very clear. For instance, mm -hmm. um, aspen, um, you know, they're very faint rings. They They form a ring every year, but they're very faint and hard to uh, distinguish. On the other hand, it, it's interesting what how we started that, you know, most uh, people learned as kids that, um, you know, trees form a ring every year and you can count those rings to, to know the age of a tree. That is true for most people in temperate regions. You okay. ask people in tropical regions, they're not that familiar with that concept because a lot of tropical trees do not have that annual ring formation because really huh. what causes a ring to be annual is the seasonality in the climate. So when we have cold winters, that's when the trees stop growing. Um, or when you have very dry winters, the trees stop growing. But in the, uh, in the tropics, when it's always wet enough and always um, warm enough for trees to grow and you don't, even have that change in the day length between winter and summer um there's a lot of trees that actually don't form annual rings they kind of keep growing uh, throughout the year that's interesting i guess maybe yeah because i grew up in texas a lot of us who grew up here in the united states are used to these like i guess non-tropical more like woody um trees uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that there there's a fundamental difference there. I guess maybe if we backed up a little bit, it would be important to talk just in really simple terms about like what a tree ring is. Is it physically just that they add wood on to the outside of their trunk every single year? Yeah. So so yeah. As I was explaining this, I realized I should back up. So you're you're right. Um, trees. Uh, 
have a stem, right? That's what mm-hmm. makes them trees. And the innermost ring is actually the oldest ring. And so okay. everything that's wood is actually already dead material. So the only living part of the stem of a tree, so we're not talking about the leaves or the roots, but of the stem of the tree, the only living part is a very thin layer of cells. We call that a cambium layer in between the bark and the wood. And so oh, interesting. That- so it's almost like our hair or our fingernails, like... We produce it, but there's only a little bit is actually what we consider to be yep. like connected to us or alive. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And huh. that um, that also means, so from that cambium layer just under the bark, that's where the tree produces new wood uh, in spring. So from the outside in, really, it starts putting on new wood cells. And so what makes an annual, why, why we can see rings in the trees is that the wood that a tree produces in the spring looks different from the wood that it produces in the fall. So in the spring, um, the tree has a lot of energy and it needs to transport a lot of water from its roots to its leaves to start growing its canopy. And so it um, forms big cells um, and that visually the wood in, that's formed in spring we call it early wood because it's grown early in the season the early wood is light in color um, and as the growing season proceeds as we're getting towards August September the end of the summer um, the tree is now putting more energy in structure. So in making more solid wood rather than wood that can transport a lot of water. So towards the end of the growing season, uh, what we call late wood, because it's formed late in the growing season, you get smaller cells with thicker cell walls because it's they need to be structurally more solid. Um, mm-hmm. And that results in a darker color. So every tree ring, every annual ring consists of early wood that's light in color and then dark wood, uh, sorry, late wood that's dark in color. And then after formation of that late wood, that's when, you know, in winter, the tree stops growing altogether. And then the next spring, it starts again with the light colored early wood. So really the, the, ring boundary that you see is the difference between the dark colored laid wood of one year and the light colored early wood of the next year. Oh, I see. I'm looking at a picture of tree rings right now. Actually, it's in the cover of your book. And you're right. I see this very striking, almost zebra-like stripe to it where it's this thin, light um, ring and then a much thicker, dark ring. And so the ring itself is actually that entire... um, region. Okay. So so tell me, how does a a tree actually make wood? I mean, I guess it's probably biochemically (laughs) really complicated, so we don't have to get too, too into the quote, you know, um, nitty gritty of it. But, you know, I think of an animal and how an animal moves, how an animal, um, you know, utilizes energy. And it's very different than the way that plants utilize energy, because plants, of course, don't have uh, locomotion. They don't walk. They don't, you know, they're not ambulatory. Right. right. But, but plants do, you know, physically grow larger. We see that you plant a tree in your yard and, you know, depending on the species, it can take 
decades, but it will grow larger. Right. So we call it, um, for, for trees, we call it primary growth uh, versus secondary growth, where primary growth is growth in height um, and secondary growth is, is growth in girth, so stem growth. Mm-hmm. So okay. we're, the wood, wood growth is the secondary growth. And in, and in a way, trees are not unlike people in that they only grow in height up to a certain age. Um, and then they only grow in growth anymore. Um, so, so their secondary growth they do throughout their life. Every year they add on a little bit of uh, uh, extra wood. Some, some years they, they add on a lot of extra wood. Some years when it's not a very good year, they, it's, it's not a lot of extra wood that they add on. But every year they're growing girth um, a little bit. And gotcha. that's, the, that's what we're measuring with tree rings. And what about when they actually do grow in length? That's obviously not able to be directly measured historically, is it? Like you can't look at how tall a tree is and have this kind of same precise understanding of its lifespan. You can have, depending on the species, you can have a bit of an estimate, but but okay. not really. like I said, only up to a certain age, and then they 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 stay constant. It's it's like people as well, you know, um, just from looking at someone's age. You can tell whether they're a five-year-old or a twenty-year-old, but you can't tell whether they're a twenty-year-old or or a fifty-year-old. Like after right, twenty, they kind they're, of stay yeah, the same kind height, of stop, so, yeah, stop growing. But trees just keep getting, I guess, fatter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And so when somebody, let's say, you know, you're a homeowner and you have a tree whose root system is, you know, busting up the sidewalk outside of your house and it's recommended that this tree gets cut down. Sad, sad, but it happens. So let's say that a tree gets cut down and now you have this giant log, you have a stump there and you go over to marvel at the way that this stump looks. You know, what is what can we really know from just looking if if we were wearing your glasses right if i were looking through a scientist's eyes um well i mean first like like we said you can see um how old the tree was when it was cut down more or less Mm -hmm. right by counting its rings um depending on where you live um you might see years when something odd happened. You could see uh, maybe when um, an insect attacked uh, hmm. the tree in some year, not just like not just nibbled a little bit on its leaves, but you know uh, had a had a big um, uh, insect infestation in, uh, that you will see in in a ring, or maybe a, a big um, storm happened and it uh, broke off a branch and that year a, a big branch with a lot of leaves on it or it, the storm blew off all the needles or leaves of the tree in a certain year and, and that will that you will see in the ring of that year as well other than that you will also kind of see that as you go from the center to the tree and actually you can also see it on the cover of my book as you go from the center of the tree towards the outer edges uh, of the tree the the rings do generally get narrower um but mm. that has very that has that's just a function of um how 
uh, of geometry, really. I mean, to put the same amount of wood around a small diameter um, will result in a wider ring than if if the diameter you start with is already three feet. And then to put the same amount of wood around that three feet diameter, it will result in a very narrow ring. Right. Compared to it. Oh, sure. That makes sense, right? It's physically, it's just more surface area. Exactly. Exactly. So that we, uh, we do have to um, work with that, you know, but that's fairly easy to model um, that effect of the diameter uh, on on ring width. You know, so when we talk about things like climate change or severe storms, fires, um, physical trauma, even disease, you know, you can see the remnants of this within the rings of the tree. But my guess is that they show up differently. Like what are some of these almost forensic clues that you're looking for? Because obviously if it were as simple as count the rings, know the age, there it is, there wouldn't be an entire department. You wouldn't have a whole lab dedicated. Very true. To it. Very true. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love to get into a little bit of like these different sort of things that you are trying to understand and what some of the indications or some of the physical manifestations of these things look like sure so so there's there's two things like one is we can look just at the width of each ring regardless of whether there's anything special going on but just by measuring the width of the ring kind of what i explained at the beginning um will give us an idea of how wet or how dry it was you know in arizona just by looking at the width of ring compared to previous and later rings Mm -hmm. now that's in arizona if for instance you go to the alps or to alaska or canada the trees don't really care how wet or dry it is because it's really dry enough most of the time they care more about how warm or how cold the summers are so they don't like it when it gets too cold in summer and that's when they won't start, uh, won't grow a lot. So gotcha. there, if you look at trees in, in Canada or Alaska, rather than getting an idea of how um, dry or wet it was, they will give you an idea of how hot or cold it was. And so then by using trees from these high latitude or high elevation uh, places, you can reconstruct uh, temperature using that. But then to get back to what you were asking about, the various uh, extreme events uh, that can cause really changes in, in individual rings, um, it, it really depends. One that I like a lot is they're called frost rings. They happen, hmm. and there's a really beautiful photo of one in the book. Um, they happen when the tree already started growing, so it's, let's say, April or May, and then a late frost happens. Um, that late frost will cause a disruption of the normal cell structure uh, of the wood cells in the ring. And so they might burst uh, the wood cells. And so you can see those kind of frost rings, um, not in all species, but in certain species. And so what is cool um and that's also in in the 
photo in the book is that you know what causes uh, like out of season frosts to happen in the past that was often volcanic eruptions so we know that volcanoes when big volcanoes erupt they uh, create cold conditions worldwide and so um, the if a big volcano erupts the chance of frost happening outside of the regular winter season is higher and so lo and behold um, by looking at frost rings in uh, some very uh, old and high elevation trees we've been able to line those up with past volcanic eruptions oh geez so then i mean you know, I I guess something that's important to describe is how old some trees really can be, because you can, in many ways, look into the the history of the tree to tell you things that either you're corroborating with written human history or potentially we don't have a record of, but you can right. make inferences from these trees. Right. So, yeah. Um the oldest living tree on earth um, is growing somewhere on the border between California, Nevada, and the White Mountains. It's a okay. pine, and it's more than 5,000 years old. So it's, it was 5,062 years old when it was sampled in, um, in 2012. And so at this point, it's very important in case everyone, uh, anyone is still in doubt is that when we sample trees, we don't have to cut down these trees, right? We have a hollow core that's about um, a quarter of an inch in diameter that we core into the tree and we can take a sample out of the tree that way. It's a bit like a biopsy. We don't need okay. to cut down 5,000-year-old trees in order to be doing our science. Whew. Yeah, so this isn't just a function of like you find things that are already felled. You can take active live samples yep. from trees, from but you trees. do it precisely. Like a, yes. you excise a little tiny bit. And that doesn't uh, like offend the tree at all? No, because it's rem remember what I was saying earlier that all the wood inside a stem is already dead, and the only yeah. living layer is that very thin layer right under the bark. So from that layer, you only take a sample that's maybe half a uh, quarter of an inch in excuse me in diameter. So you're really not harming the tree at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and does the tree itself when it uh, I, I guess this is a bigger question and sorry to take a turn because I want to come back to this, but does the tree itself have some sort of reaction? Let's say when a biopsy or I'm sure you don't call it a biopsy, but when a sample <laughs> is taken or, you know, when something happens to it, that's like a physical trauma, does it scar over? Does it yeah. have some sort of, it does. Um, yeah, that's a good question. It depends a little bit on the species, but typically like trees can't um, heal like unlike okay. us it can't they can um you know just grow new wood and fill it up um but they can they compartmentalize so on the one hand they um exert uh chemicals around the wound, wound to prohibit that you know um uh, any diseases come in or spread through the wood um mm -hmm. on the other hand that when they when they uh, form new rings, new wood, they try cl and close off that wound. Um, so they will try and, and grow around it. 
over it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so that probably also tells you something, right? When you're when you're looking into into those trees. So my assumption is that you can learn what you can learn at the microscopic level and maybe a little bit at the macroscopic level from these small core samples. But when you do look like look at a full cross section of a felled tree stunk uh, tree trunk that you actually are going to learn a little bit more because you're going to see more geometry. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so with the core samples, you know, you're only, you're getting an, an idea of what all happened, um, Mm -hmm. with the, with the whole, um, STEM cross section, you get much more information, obviously. And there are aspects, um, particularly what you were talking about in terms of wounds that you cannot study with coring alone, for instance, fire history, like, if we look at wildfires of the past, um, if they have harmed a tree and wounded a tree, that kind of research you you need to take a, a cross section. It's it's mm-hmm. impossible to do with cores alone. Um, but even then, you don't need to. If you're good, if you've got good chainsaw skills, um, you can actually take a wedge out of the tree. Um, oh, wow! Yeah, it's it's amazing how how good some people are with a chainsaw. You can take a wedge <laughs> out. Um, so rather than cutting that down the tree, you take a wedge out of it, and that could be maybe only ten percent of the surface uh, of the tree, and it will still perfectly survive it. It's not a pretty sight, but it's doable. All right, everyone, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, the International Journal of Science, Nature. And of course, I have my newest um, edition of Nature right here in front of me. And I'm reading all about, you know, what's the newest with the global pandemic. And of course, oh, my favorite, how distrust in scientific expertise is evolving with regard to vaccine refusal. Honestly, guys, nature is my go-to place for science news, and it can be yours as well. You're going to be able to keep up to date with the latest in peer-reviewed research, in news, in commentary, covering all different fields of science and technology. And if you hold tight, I'm going to give you a 50% off code amazing. This is a weekly scientific journal. So you're not only going to have access online, but you're also going to get a a print journal every single week. It's been around for 150 years. And um, oh, oh, I even forgot to mention, you also get archived issues. So you've got online access to what's current. You get 51 weekly print issues and you get the archive all the way back to 1997, which is incredible. So here's how you got to do it, guys. You, you visit go.nature.com slash nerdy. And when you subscribe there, you'll get 50% off of your annual subscription. Okay? So that's go.nature.com slash nerdy for 50% off. All right, everyone. Let's get back to the show. And so I, I guess um, tree ring researchers who look at different phenomena have slightly different ways that they study them. You mostly, as you mentioned at the very beginning, look at climate history. And so these cores are, are they mostly sufficient for the type of work that you do? Yeah. Yeah. For climate history. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Yes. Um, so coring, we definitely, for living trees when possible and for climate cores are, are very suitable. 
um, we core living trees. But then the thing is, um, we're not limited to only looking at living trees. We can also right. ma- make use of the wood of dead trees and of archaeological material and of historical buildings and even of you know sub-fossil wood, so wood that was preserved in peat bogs or in riverbeds. Um, huh. But for if the tree's no longer alive you know, we're not, we, we don't have to worry about killing it because it's already no longer alive. Yeah. So then, for instance, if you have, you're taking a sample from a, a tree that's dead and lying on the ground, um, we prefer to take a sample with a chainsaw because then mm-hmm. you get, as you mentioned earlier, you get, you can get all the information out of it and the tree's dead already anyway. So, and, and so, Uh, Do trees, I guess, you mentioned kind of archaeological or even like paleontological, kind of like fossilized, what we think of as petrified trees or petrified wood, or or you also mentioned actual building materials in like old buildings that you can learn a little bit from that wood. If a tree just falls in the forest, haha, you haven't heard that one before. (laughs) Um, uh, Does it start to, it starts to decompose, right? So at what point are you able to use um, dead tree material that hasn't been preserved? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And this is something I only learned from being a dendrochronologist is that um, the rate at which trees that die in the forest decompose depends a lot on how warm or dry uh, or moist it is in that forest. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in a, in a rainforest in let's say Oregon or Washington, you're not going to find wood that's, um, you know, a hundred years old that has been lying around for a hundred years. There's going to be very severely decomposed. On the other hand, what I was talking about, those bristlecone pines, those 5,000 year old trees that I was talking about, they grow, um, high in the mountains and very raw in a very rocky area where it's and cold and very dry. So even when they die, um, they can, we've, we have found not me personally, but some of my colleagues have found tree trunks that have been lying around of bristlecone pines that have been lying around for more than a thousand years than a thousand years. So they sampled them and these trees died a thousand years ago and they're still on, they're still there. Um, which is oh, mind blowing, and that allows you if you know if a tree died a thousand years ago and it was three thousand years old when it died, you know all of a sudden you can go even further back in time uh, than before. That's incredible, and so we're not just talking at a certain point. Um, uh, you know, weather patterns or wildfires or things like that. But my guess is that you're able to see things like glaciation, like changes in ice ages, things that you can then corroborate with evidence from, um, you know, scientists who are taking ice core samples and who are looking at uh, uh, the polar caps and things of that nature. We're getting there. We're getting there. It's, it's, um, you know, we still have a lot of work ahead of us. The longest continuous tree ring chronology. So the, the, mm-hmm. the longest record for which we have one ring for each and every year right now is 12,650 years old. 
So it's just yeah, it's just older than the than the last um, you know than the Holocene and the, the most recent interglacial. Um, so that's based on wood from oaks and pines in Germany. Okay, um, and so they use living trees, obviously, then dead trees, uh, arc, uh, historical building material, and then for the oldest part. They used material from peat bogs and from uh, river sediments. So that was wood that has been preserved underwater because it's been preserved in anoxic, so in in, uh, conditions where oxygen cannot reach it. Without oxygen, also... um, uh, like it couldn't decompose? Decompo- yeah, like it, can't, it cannot decompose. Like the bacteria, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, the bacteria and the fungi that decompose wood cannot live without oxygen. So if as long as the wood's underwater or um, without oxygen, it is preserved. And so it can be preserved yeah. for 10,000 years. And that's how they oh. developed this uh, longest uh, tree ring chronology. But really the... Um, uh, you're right. We can compare it to ice cores uh, and other climate proxies, lake sediments and, and mm. uh, corals, for instance. But really, the advantage that tree rings have over other climate proxies is that we have one data point every year, each and every year. So right. we can look at the climate not just over long periods of time, but at very precise periods of time. And so we can look at these climate extremes, at heat waves, at wildfires, at storms, which is much harder to do if you don't have annual uh, level data. You really need mm-hmm. that high, we call it high resolution, uh, high temporal resolution to do that. And so, you know, you mentioned before these indicators that generally speaking at the when we're talking about climate and when we're talking about the level of the ring, this like individual year, this very granular data, it's a function of poverty or um, abundance. So it's a function of the ring being nice and thick or skinny. Are there other kind of uh, micro indications? Like when you're looking down, you mentioned the frost rings too, but when you're looking at a cross section under the microscope, are there, you know, shape changes to the cells? Are there wiggly lines? Is there, I mean, what other kinds of things can you glean just from the morphology? Yeah. So one important additional uh, metric that we use, parameter that we use is, is the density of the wood. So okay. um, how and that's really a function of how thick or thin the, the cell walls are of the wood cells, mm-hmm. and so it turns out that the um, density of the wood, especially of the of the late wood, so um, is is very dependent on how warm or cold it is. So it is a very good proxy for temperature. So mm-hmm. um, in addition to just the width of the ring. Um, there's the density of the wood. And then this is now something that's, but this is a very active field of research, is really looking at indiv- what you're saying, looking at individual wood cells and seeing whether there's characteristics of the wood cells that we can use to look at additional uh, climate of other or other conditions. But as you can imagine, that is very um you know, you, you need to take images of each uh, ring 
uh, very high resolution and then automized uh, interpretation of those images. So it's very computing, uh, very computing heavy uh, application that's really only starting to pick up uh, over, let's say, the last five years. So, so I think there's still a lot, a lot of informational information to be found there, but. we're very actively working on that as a community. Uh, it's fascinating that there's so much that you can glean from something that seems almost um, kind of nondescript. Something I mean, we're so used to seeing the cross sections of trees. We see it in, you know, in our furniture. We see it in doors. We see them on stumps when we're walking across lawns. Um, And the fact that it contains so much, you know, interesting information, and not just about the natural world, but in many ways about the kind of Anthropocene, about the human effects on the natural world. Yep. Yeah. And also, I mean, and that's where, and this is, uh, that's where the application of dendrochronology in archaeology and art history um, comes in. And that I find that so fascinating. It's not my field of expertise, um, but some of those discoveries I find just amazing where you can um, date, for instance, when anything really that's made out of wood and that has enough rings in it, that can be a door or a beam from an archaeological site or even a piece of charcoal or a musical instrument, and as long as it has enough rings in it and as mm-hmm. long as you have a reference chronology that dates it to the present, we can provide a, a very exact date of when, let's say, that musical build, uh, instrument was built. Uh, of when that painting that was painted oh, on a wow. wooden oak panel, when that was painted. Um, so it's in a way, it's much more precise. For instance, I often get asked whether, you know, oh, do you date material with radiocarbon dating? And it's actually the other way around. Like it's much more precise than radiocarbon dating. And actually radiocarbon dating as a method has been calibrated uh, by radiocarbon dating, you know, those very old bristlecone pines that I was talking about. So um, we're a much more uh, precise method of dating than radiocarbon dating. Oh, and that's it- amazing. And I think about like art history so much of like, Ancient art was painted on wood. You don't even really realize it. Sometimes you're so used to looking at these images on your computer screen. But then when you're lucky enough to, I remember going to see, you know, Hieronymus Bosch in like in real life and realize like, oh, these are altar doors or this is a table. Like this is not a canvas. Right, right. And so it gets better because like we can date the wooden material on which these paintings or or, uh, music instruments uh, were made. But because by now we have a network of more than 4,000 chronologies, and and for some regions the network is even more dense than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And because if you remember from the very start of our conversation, I was talking about how all trees that grow in the same region will will show – a similar pattern of wide and narrow rings throughout mm-hmm. the years. Um, because we now have such a wide network of tree chronologies, by comparing the chronology or the, the sequence of rings that you see, let's say, in a, in a wooden uh, altar 
panel um, by comparing that to chronologies from various regions you can find the best fit and in that way also figure out not just when the piece was made but where the wood came from that it was made off um, and so for instance a, a colleague of mine um i mean she does really cool work uh, she is a shipwreck dendroarchaeologist. So, oh, wow. yeah, so she, her job is to dive to shipwrecks to then take samples from the wood in those wrecks and then to use dendrochronology to find out when those ships were built and what the origin of the wood was. And there's so much you can find out. Um, uh, about you know history, the history of wood use, the history of um, of trade as well uh, throughout the years. Oh, that's fascinating! And so, it, you know, in in sitting down to actually write this book, was the intention from the very beginning to say, okay, I really want to write like a popular science book about the more kind of heady academic stuff that I do. Was it to kind of uh, I don't know, broaden your own um, education so that you could talk to all of your yeah. colleagues <laughs> and look at all the cool ways that dendrochronology is being used? Well, the original intention was the first. So I, I was very lucky. I've been, I mean, I've been very lucky. I was in 2017, I, I got a sabbatical from my university. So I was lucky in that way. And I really wanted to do something else, but just, you know, continuing to... Uh, write grants and write papers. I wanted to, I needed a break. I wanted to do something else. And so at the mm. start of my sabbatical, I actually got an email from Tiffany, who is now my editor at, at Johns Hopkins University. I didn't know her before. So I got this email out of the blue asking me whether I was interested in writing a broad audience book about dendrochronology. And my first reaction was like, ah, oh, surely that exists. You know, it's such a easily accessible science. And, and there's so many great stories to tell about tree rings. Like, surely someone's written that book already. And then mm -hmm. I started thinking about it and realized, no, actually, I, I cannot think of a book like that. And I'm a dendrochronologist, so if, it existed, <laughs> if such a book existed, surely I would know about it. Um, so it, it was from the get go, um, the intention to write a broad audience book and to bring the many stories, uh, you know, science stories that we can tell with tree rings to, to bring them to a broader audience. And, but it's absolutely right. What you said that I learned so much through writing this book, there was so much that I didn't know um, that I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed about because, you know, I, my official title is Professor in Dendrochronology, and yet there's so much that I didn't know about, you know, my own field of research. It's been great. It's been a great learning experience for me as well. Is it a big field? Like, is it one of, you know, sometimes in, in the sciences, there are fields that are so big and so like branching that you can't possibly keep up with all the literature and you kind of don't know most of the people you go to conferences and there's thousands of people. And then there are fields where it's like, yeah, we kind of all know each other's names and we pretty yeah, much, much yeah. know what everybody's up to. It, which camp does it fall more into? Uh, I would say more the latter. Um, nice. So, you know, our conferences are, 
are maybe, you know, the, the World Trearing Conference is maybe 400 people, 500 people. So I wouldn't say that I know every dendrochronologist in the world at all, but I know a lot of them. Um, and mm-hmm. in terms of keeping up with the field, there is a bit of a, you know, I, um, I keep up with the field of dendroclimatology. Um, I, you know what, everything that's going on in the ecology sector, and that's really growing now as well, because, um, you know, how trees, you know, their wood is made up of carbon, right? So trees, through photosynthesis, they take carbon out of the atmosphere and then store it in their wood. So they're a very important component for us to find a solution for anthropogenic climate change. And so there's a lot, a lot of research that's going on uh, in that area, Uh, but it's growing so fast. There's so much happening that it's for me as, as a, you know, someone coming from a a slightly different uh, perspective, that's a big field to try and uh, keep on top of the literature. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And do you find that there's a lot of um, kind of collaboration across, you know, fields? Because I know that one thing that is really striking about your book is that it's not just this historical journey, but it's also like a a geographical journey. Like you've really traveled the world to learn a lot of these things. and, And my assumption is that many of your colleagues are covering other areas at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So per definition, you know, it's an interdisciplinary field. Like, as I mentioned, tree rings are being used for archaeology, for climatology, for ecology, and they're all interlinked, right? When, when we wanted to reconstruct the climate over the last 2,500 years in Central Europe, we needed to collaborate with archaeologists who had, who had the archaeological material to give us those data because there's not 2,500-year-old trees in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. So you need to collaborate. And, oh, for instance, you know, one of the topics I describe in my book in a few chapters is how past climate change has been a, a factor influencing um, human history, so the, the rise and fall of, of past civilizations. I'm a paleoclimatologist. Like if I, I'm not the one to know everything about past human history. So if I want to do that kind of research, which I find very interesting, I, I need to collaborate with historians. Yeah. Or as a paleoclimatologist, I you know it, it's the reason why we are studying the climate of the past is to get a good, a better idea of what's happening now and how that's going to change in the future. But with our trees, we look at the past. We don't look at the future. If I want to, um, if I want to make my result, excuse me, my results as applicable as possible to our future climate, I need to collaborate with climatologists and climate mm-hmm. modelers. But that's really what makes it such an exciting time to be a scientist, right? There's, we know so much, there's so much data to build on, you know, the, the field of dendrochronology is now almost a century old. So we've been collecting treeing data from across the world as a community for almost a century. We, we're sitting on this uh mountain of data and now we have all the computing power that we need to run all kinds of exciting analysis on them so it's really 
that's another reason why I wanted to write this book. I, I it's very exciting to be a scientist, um, and and there's so much discoveries to be made that I wanted to share with with the broader audience as well. Oh, I love that, and it's such an interesting field that I think a lot of people don't think about as a potential career option. You know, it's like in the back of our mind, we have these ideas about trees and about, you know, what they can tell us. But then we sometimes forget like, oh, yeah, there are people who are studying this and who are learning really fascinating things about our life history from looking at these, uh, basically these artifacts. Um, And of course, in many ways, being able to project and be able to develop an understanding of the future and and some of the decisions that we can be making now to help protect that future. It it all kind of comes together to tell this really beautiful story. Yeah, I I couldn't have said it better <laughs> than you. I'm very I am I came into this career rather serendipitously. I don't think there's as you mentioned, I don't think there's many people who grow up thinking that they'll uh, want to be dendrochronologists uh, when they. Uh, uh, you know, as a career when they grow up. Um, but I'm very happy that I did. There's so many uh, interesting angles uh, to look at. It's so relevant for our future. Um, and then, to be honest, the, ma- the material that we work with, it's so beautiful. You know, looking at wood through a microscope, it is, it's gorgeous. It's really, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with my career choice. Oh, I love that. That's I, I think it's so inspiring and it's so important for people, you know, especially, you know, there are a fair amount of listeners to the show that are doing what they're doing and they have their career and they're, you know, enjoying their lives and and um, and more power to you. I'm so glad to hear it. And then there's a fair amount of people who are, you know, in high school or in college and trying to figure out what their path is going to be. And so I'm always really excited to hear about like, you know, strong, interesting women who are answering really big questions in fields that maybe didn't necessarily um, seem realistic to a lot of people, which I guess raises the question, like, what did you study to get where you are? Were you, you know, what departments did you find yourself in throughout your academic career? Right. So um, maybe from my accent, you can hear that I'm, I'm, my, my, Mother tongue is Dutch, so I'm from Belgium originally. I got all of my education in Belgium, and my uh, uh, bachelor and master's degree are in environmental engineering, so I have an engineering background. Oh, okay. Oh, um, interesting. And Not it, what I would have guessed. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it was during uh, when picking a master's thesis topic that I ran into dendrochronology. So, and, and again, really serendipitously, I'd never heard of dendrochronology before. Um, but I was looking for a, a topic for my master's thesis and I really wanted to go abroad. And there was this one topic that was posted to study tree rings in Tanzania. And I really wanted to go to Tanzania. So I figured if, um, tree rings bring me there, then I'll go and do that. Um, mm. But then when I I went to Tanzania, brought back samples, um, and then when I looked, started looking at the wood through the microscope in the lab, that's when I, I just, I really enjoyed doing that a lot. So I, I continued on to do a PhD uh, from there on, still in uh, environmental engineering, 
Um, and after my PhD, finishing my PhD in Belgium, I moved to Penn State uh, University for a postdoc, and that was in the geography department. So okay. I think uh, a lot of what we do, and many of my colleagues are in geography, physical physical geography. Then there's obviously, the, you know, it, it depends a little bit on what which of the three main pillars of dendrochronology that you're working on, whether it's climatology or ecology or archaeology. Um, you know, my archaeology colleagues are in archaeology or anthropology departments often. Um, mm-hmm. Then my ecology colleagues are often in um forestry or natural resources departments or geography or geosciences. Um, myself at the moment, I'm now um, a professor at the, you know, in, in the laboratory of tiering research, which is a department of its own. Um, but we don't have a graduate degree as okay. a department. So my grad students come in through either geosciences or the school of natural resources or hydrology and atmospheric sciences. So it really depends on, um, because it's such an interdisciplinary science, you can uh, come at it from a lot of angles. Right, because I'm sitting here assuming, and and maybe it's because of my bias that I came up through um, the biology department at my school, um, and I saw a lot of plant biologists. And so my assumption was that like, this was mostly going to be ecology, environmental science, or just like basic biochemistry or something like that. And people would find themselves in this field that way. But it's really interesting how much of it is through this kind of like engineering background, or even this um, geography background. Right, right. Yeah. And I think also, yeah, with the geography angle, as you know, climate human interaction or human environment interactions are uh, becoming more important and more and more people are studying it. I think that's where geography really comes in and really, you know, combines these, these different angles. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's just like, it's science is so uh, multidisciplinary now and there's so many different ways to kind of meander your yourself to the goal that, I mean, as you mentioned before, it's a really exciting time to be a scientist. I think it's also a really exciting time to be a developing scientist, like to, to be in academic science and, and learning about science because you have so many more options now yeah. than you ever yeah. had before. And really you can f- you can pave your way however you want to, to get into the field that you like, which is really great. Yeah. I can't agree more. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, gosh, Valerie, I I feel like I've learned so much. I know that there's still so much more to learn, but as we're getting towards the end of our conversation, um, I was wondering, A, if there's anything we haven't covered yet that you would like to cover. And then after that, if, if at the very end, you'd be willing to answer the final two questions that I ask all of my guests who join me on the show. (laughs) I think we covered a lot of ground. So I don't, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun. So yeah, I think I'm ready for your final two questions. Sure. Awesome. Okay. So these are pretty big picture questions, but I want you to answer them contextually in kind of, um, whatever, 
however they feel relevant to you. So the first question is, you know, when you think about the future and we could be talking about the future of your career, the future, you know, something personal or something much bigger, like something more global. Number one, what is the thing that's really keeping you up the most at night? The thing that you're most kind of concerned about, maybe even, I don't know, um, pessimistic about. And then on the flip side of that, so we end on a positive note, what are you like genuinely looking forward to? What are you hopeful and optimistic for? I think that's a fairly uh, straight, well, relatively straightforward questions to answer as a climatologist. So I am, Mm -hmm. climate change keeps me up at night. Um, Mostly what it, you know, not climate change per se, but climate change in a in a very densely populated world with a um, with a socioeconomic structure that we that we have. Um, so that keeps me up. What what is that? How how are we gonna handle that? And then mm-hmm. what is what gives me hope is that really we have. There's a lot of the solutions in hand to get started right now, right? Um, we know what we need to do. Uh, we need to bring our carbon dioxide emissions down. Uh, and we need to find alternative uh, sources, not just find, we need to apply alternative sources of energy uh, use. So it's not that hard. <laughs> we can do it. Um, yeah. so I'm hopeful that we, that we can do it. And again, it's in addition to that, it's, as I mentioned, it's a great time to do science. Um, there's so many things that we don't know yet that we're on the verge of finding out, um, both in terms of science and in terms of climate change solutions, um, that, that make me hopeful. I love it. I mean, I think that it's, yeah, it's not an uncommon answer. So that's good because I feel like even people working in other fields of science are um, obviously not just acutely aware, but incredibly concerned about, um, about the climate crisis. And so it's good to see that it's, you know, you don't have to be an expert to, I think, be, um, be concentrating on, changes that we can be making on both an individual level, but even probably more importantly, on a policy and kind of governmental and corporate level. Um, So so that is good to hear. But it's also good to hear those sentiments coming from somebody who does this for a living. Um, I think it's obviously an important message that all of us needed to hear. And um, I'd say the same for for your new book. It's called Tree Story, the history of the world written in rings. Um, Valerie, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I had an absolute blast. Me too. Thanks. This was great, Kara. I really appreciate it. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm-hmm.